When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And as a master's student completing, completing his thesis, you don't want to know what my diet looks like for, for an example of how people should be eating. I was drinking like four double shot espresso, like Starbucks mocha things a day. And then like, I was like, oh shit, it's 10 PM and I have to hit my protein. So let's chug three fair life protein bottles with 44 grams of protein each. Oh, God. don't live like that. Don't eat like that. This is not a recommendation. Uh, but yeah, I mean, look, you you kind of got it. You kind of hit the nail on the head there, which is like, there's pretty loose rules here as far as nutrition is concerned, which is really, you know, that's really nice for a lot of people is that like, there are some, you know, fundamental things that you should do. What is up, everybody? My name is Kyle Matovic. I am the host of the In Liberty and Health podcast, where we talk all things liberty, health and wellness, and beyond. My hope is to encourage and spread the message of liberty and physical and mental well-being. I hope you enjoy all the topics we talk about with our guests. We're on all major streaming platforms, so please sit back, relax, and enjoy. Man, I'm doing as good as anyone can do getting buried by his 13-year-old son on leg day. <laughs> I'm not going to apologize for not being on this podcast because I got to go see Metallica, so... If that's a problem, kiss my ass. Okay? I am. <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right, everybody. This is In Liberty and Health. And today I've been looking forward to this conversation. Um, I have Max Coleman with me. He works underneath the world's leading hypertrophy researcher, Brad Schoenfeld. Uh, but um, I'll let him introduce himself much better than I can. Uh, so, Max, go ahead. How are you doing? I'm really good, man. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, yeah. So, like you said, my name is Max uh, I'm just now finishing up my master's program under Dr. Schoenfeld. In fact, I'll defend my thesis and hopefully before the month is over. Uh, so I'll actually be a, an NMS in exercise science. Uh, and I'm mostly interested in, just like Brad Schoenfeld, manipulating training variables in hopes to elicit as much of a hypertrophic response as we can. So uh, simply put, I'm interested in training to get jacked. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's just about every single uh, dude who ever picked up a weight in his entire life. That's generally their goal. Um, so um, kind of where did all this start for you? I want to get there and then we can get to kind of like your research stuff uh, later. Um, I'm guessing, well, you know, like how old are you and like what age did you start resistance training? Yeah, so I there's a there's a conversation about how I got into lifting, and then there's obviously a conversation about what got me into like the evidence based research side of lifting. Um, so I'm 25. Yes, yes, I'm 25. Um, <laughs> just just making sure I just turned 25 in April, so that's why that's why I had to make sure. But yeah, they, they I'm 25, and yeah, yeah, and and it's only downhill from here too, right? <laughs> that quarter life crisis everyone's always talking about. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, I'm 25, and I started lifting when I was a about 11 or 12. Um, and I just got into lifting for the same reason every Gen Z kid around my age got into lifting. I joked about this on another podcast, but basically like just Marvel movies and Wolverine basically being jacked and me being like, oh, I, I'd like to be jacked too. So how can I do that? And then looking into that. And then, so that was around 12 years old. And then I basically just lifted like a bro from 12 to 18, 19. And then I started getting involved a little bit more with uh, some evidence-based stuff. I was introduced to people like Brad Schoenfeld, uh, Mike Isertel, Eric Holmes and stuff. Mm -hmm. And that started kind of gearing my way of thinking about lifting and stuff towards uh, an evidence-based approach. And then that was just a rabbit hole from there that got me to where I am today, which is hopefully graduating with a master's in human performance here soon. Yeah, dude, that's awesome. Uh, you, uh, you're about three years younger than me, but you got a uh, evidence-based approach down much, much sooner than I did. Because um, I started training probably around the same age, and I really didn't start diving into the research and learning how to like actually train and learning that, oh, you could train a body part more than once a week until I was probably, probably around like 24, 25, so about as old as you are now. And like, it is just absolutely phenomenal. I'm sure you had this experience too, that whenever you figured out like training that there's more than just the bro split that like your gains are just 
you know, off the table. You're like, holy shit. I left all this on the table for years. It's a, uh, yeah, it's, it's incredible. Did you kind of have a similar experience? Uh, I'm really sorry, Kyle. I don't know what happened, but I, I can't hear you anymore. I think something cut, cut off or something. Oh, my bad. Can you hear me? Oh, you're back now. That was weird. <laughs> okay. Sorry. I oh, lost, sorry. I lost you after talking about gains soaring after learning about, uh, okay, the yeah, evidence based yeah. side. Yeah. So, um, when you kind of found out about the evidence-based kind of stuff, when you were 18 ish, did, uh, your gains kind of take off because that's definitely the way it was for me. Because like I said, I had like almost 10 years under my belt. And then finally, once I learned how to actually train, right. And you could do more than just a bro split. I was like, Holy crap. Like I left all this on the table for years. Yeah. So I, I wish I could be like, yeah, I learned, I found out who Dr. Isertel was. And all of a sudden I put three inches on my biceps, but <laughs> unfortunately that's not really the case that, the truth is I, I wasn't training like a complete idiot from, from 12 years old to, to 18 or 19. I was training generally pointed in the right direction. So my goal is, has always been uh, hypertrophy and just getting jacked. So mm -hmm. I was still training hard. I was still training with relatively high volumes, um, maybe doing some things a little bit less intelligently, not, not really managing fatigue as well as I should have been. And then nutrition, the nutrition side of thing obviously hindered my progress as well. Um, but it wasn't anything like exponential. It was just, I learned these new tricks, not tricks, but I learned the principles of training for hypertrophy and, and, and eating for muscle growth. And it started just trickling along and, and add, you know, pound of muscle here, a couple ounces of muscle. And it just, it was a gradual increase rather than me being like, oh my God, how, how have I been leaving these gains on the table? Oh, I wish, I wish that it was like uh, switching to an evidence-based approach was like the equivalent of taking D-ball for the first time, but that just, uh. <laughs> That just wasn't how it was for me, unfortunately. Yeah. Well, like I said, for me, it was just I wasn't going nearly hard as I should have. And it was also kind of like the nutrition stuff for me because I um, I was at one point a lot more heavy set and then I lost about 70 pounds was I kind of got my nutrition in check. And like I, I just remember for years, I was like, oh, who would have thought, you know, eating correctly would bring you much better gains and better body composition? Like <laughs> it doesn't make any sense at all, right? So um, one thing that you wrote about and that I've kind of gone back and forth with is um, training to failure. So um, if you listen to a lot of the guys on YouTube and TikTok, they'll tell you you have to go to failure because you're going to impose the highest stimulus possible. But from what I understand from most of the research, and I listen to a lot of the same people that you do, um, you know, Lane Norton, Eric Helms, Mike Isertel, Brad Schoenfeld, um, those kind of guys um, – it seems like most evidence suggests that if you're within like one, two, maybe even three reps shy of failure, you get just about the same benefits as training to failure. Um, and I know that one of the papers you sent over to me was kind of highlighting some of this. So I'm curious your kind of thoughts and your experience with training to failure and if you still incorporate it or not. Yeah. So, um, hmm, this is a, this is an interesting conversation and one that I'll try not to just, uh, repeat all the same things that we, we often hear. Uh, I was just talking to a friend about this, um, about, cause I, I personally think that like proximity to failure is one of the most important variables when it comes to making adaptations across almost all fitness characteristics in the gym. Uh, but definitely hypertrophy and, and definitely strength, uh, which is what the majority of people are talking about anyways. Um, and I was saying that I think that a lot of the bros in the world the 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 bro arnold split guys in the world would stand to benefit a lot from listening to nerds like me uh and and people in the evidence base side and i also think that a lot of nerds like me and a lot of people in the evidence base side would stand to benefit a lot from listening to the bros right mm -hmm. so do i think training to failure is necessary for eliciting the best goals whether it be strength or hypertrophy of course not Anyone who is up to date with what's going on in the world is aware that training to failure is absolutely not necessary if you want to get jacked or strong. Mm -hmm. However, most people who are also up to date with the literature know that most people aren't training to failure even when they say they are, right? Mm -hmm. uh, it turns out that even training status doesn't seem to, to be a really good indicator of if someone's good at predicting their proximity to failure, right? So do I think training to failure is a good idea even though it's not necessary? Absolutely. I think that it's necessary to train to failure solely so that you can know what it feels like to fail. And then using that, what we call setting the anchor, will allow you to know what it feels like to be one, two, three reps away from failure, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that can be extremely valuable. And then also, uh, I don't think that going to failure is, is nearly as 
scary or detrimental as a lot of people say. Um, I know Greg Knuckles talks about this a lot. Like he, he says he's never done a, a set of bicep curls, not to failure. And I don't know who that's hurting. Obviously there's certain exercises, obviously that are more conducive to it. Like lateral raises, who's, who's hurting themselves or their progress doing lateral raises to failure. Right. Uh, and then there are obviously instances where you would probably want to avoid that, like benching alone or, or doing like a, a deadlifts to failure or uh, squats to failure. Right. Um, so Sorry, I'm rambling here at this point, but I think that training to failure is really good for setting that anchor and, and letting you know what it feels like to be close to failure. But aside from that, I don't see a whole lot of benefit from it in general. Okay. And then on the same hand, I'm, I'm obviously apprehensive about telling people not to train to failure for the same reasons I was just saying, which is that most people I would say on average are a little bit further away from failure maybe than they should be. So then telling people, oh, you don't need to go to failure. It's not a big deal may further exacerbate that issue, obviously. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So to me, it kind of seems like when the bar starts to slow down or whatever exercise you're doing really starts to slow down on the, uh, you know, on the extension, um, that's probably a sign that you're getting pretty close. And it seems like there's also a lot of debate in what people may define as failure. So like some people may say, when you can't complete another clean rep, that's failure. Or when you can't physically move the weight anymore, that's failure. Um, what is the most common definition amongst the literature and what would be the, def the definition that you would use? Uh, so, okay. Um, to say, I, I can't give you what's the most, there's, there's a huge conversation right now just amongst people in this field is like, what is failure? And I think James Steele has an amazing paper on what is failure. Uh, so I don't think that there is a most commonly used term for failure definition for what we usually refer to as failure. So we most commonly, I would say that there's two that are like show up the most frequently. And those are volitional failure, which is just, I think a bit of a misnomer. I think uh, volitional cessation would be a much better term because volitional failure failure is just a way we kind of like hedge our bets and like cover our asses in the research world where we're saying that these people are they say they're failing, like the subjects or whoever it is training, right, says they, they're failing. And, and it's volitional cessation of the, of the movement. So to call that failure, I think, is a bit of a misnomer, like I said. And then the other most common, which I think is a little bit um, easier to wrap your head around and easier to um, quantify, is just concentric muscle failure, which is, like you were just saying, you cannot move the weight in a concentrically at all. So like on a bench press, you can go down, but there, there is no going up no matter how much force you try putting into that bar. Right. And I think that is typically when I say failure, that's usually what I mean. I mean, mm -hmm. concentric failure, where even if you are giving it your all, you are not able to complete that rep with proper form on whatever exercise it is that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that generally seems to be what I would define as failure, what most people seem to pin as failure as well. Um, So when it comes to programming, you kind of alluded to it earlier, but the way that I typically program failure, and I'm guessing you probably do something similar, if you're going to do it, um, obviously no compound lifts. So like you said, no squats, deadlifts, bench press alone. Um, But when it comes to, let's say like a bicep curl, tricep extension, lateral raises, or some, you know, like extension, hamstring curls, you could probably safely go to failure. And the way that I personally would program it would be at the very end of like your exercise for that specific body part, take that very, very last set to failure. And then, you know, you're, you're good. Um, would you disagree with that? Or would that be kind of how you program that as well? Uh, it's definitely not how I personally program okay. uh for my clients or myself uh but i don't disagree with it so uh on a i think it's i mean as you know you're a coach so it's like a very much an individual basis you have kind of go case by case because there are i'm sure you've had some uh clients where going to failure can wreck them for their next workout even if it's the last you know the last workout of the week for that muscle group some people going to failure just leads them to like accrue so much fatigue that even if you give them a couple of days, they're still a little bit more beat up than they probably should be before their next workout. Um, and like you said, it kind of depends on the person and also the muscle we're talking about. You take your, uh, like your lateral delts to failure. 
they're good tomorrow. Like, I mean, how many, I mean, how often are your delts sore from training? You know, it's just not something that happens. Even if you smash your delts, it's just not, it's just not something that happens. Whereas if I were to do like, even you said hamstring curls, and, and this is obviously what I said, case by case myself, if I do hamstring curls to failure, I'm, I'm fucked for like four days. Like <laughs> I, I can't walk, let alone like train my hamstrings again. If I train them with like all out balls to the wall failure. Right. So it's better for, people like me and other uh any listeners that like find that to be the case for them to maybe stay away from failure now that's not to say that i'm training easily like a set yeah. that's two rir that's two reps away from failing is not an easy set it's very difficult um but it's difficult enough uh to where it stimulates the muscle but not so difficult to where it inhibits my next uh training session but i am stoked to tell you guys about the show's new sponsor i am now working with mts nutrition which is a brand that i've believed in for a very long time and they run awesome cells and they have awesome products so um i want to tell you about their amazing protein powder which you're going to ask me how many pounds i have of the protein powder and the answer is all of them so here i got red velvet cake 25 grams of protein and they have the amino acids and everything on there, 59 servings. Peanut butter fluff, uh, fluffernutter, 26 grams of protein. And then also the chocolate chip cookie, which literally has real pieces of chocolate chip cookie in there. So 27 grams of protein, 180. As I've talked about on the show, getting your protein in is very, very important. So make sure you hit that link below and purchase your protein powder through MTS Nutrition. Boom! Like I said, that's a case-to-case -case basis. So I'm not saying that you programming that way for your clients or yourself is necessarily wrong by any means. Yeah. And, um, right now, um, we were talking a little bit off air. I just finished my deload and, um, for usually the first couple of weeks, I won't train to failure. I'll get pretty close, but then usually towards the end, I'll start to program in the uh, training to failure. But usually how I knew or how I know it's time to deload is like, you know, it's the last week or two. And I'm like, man, I don't want to train. I'm miserable. I'm tired. <laughs> so it's probably a good idea. Hey, um, bump back up the maintenance for a little bit and let's just, you know, kind of hang loose, eat, enjoy, don't worry about anything. Just get a good stimulus in and, um, you know, get out. Don't worry about beating yourself up too much. Um, yeah. So when it comes to kind of doing deloads, then, uh, what's your kind of thoughts and programming around that? Yeah. So, um, for those of you who don't know, I just finished my, the thesis that I've been like kind of alluding to this whole conversation is a study on deloads. So, uh, it's, it was a study where we took, uh, 50 subjects. We started with 50 and we, we lost some, uh, just a, it's just the nature of, of longitudinal study. So we ended up with, I believe 38 or 39 subjects. Uh, and you were either in a group where you trained for nine weeks straight and then you, we, you, that was it. You just trained for nine weeks straight or you trained for four weeks. You took one week completely off of training and then you trained for four more weeks, right? Mm -hmm. Kind of a proof of concept to see what we were, how we felt about the, uh, or to see what effects a deload might cause, right? Um, and I definitely think, uh, and I can't talk about the results yet because we haven't run like full statistics mm -hmm. on them, but basically we didn't find huge differences amongst groups, oh, right? Okay. So that's, that is to say at the very least that um, taking a little bit of time away from training probably is not going to hurt your, your gains, uh, very much, at least in the long term, Right. And then as far as how I go about programming them, regardless of, of my thesis, right. I think, uh, what you kind of alluded to there is, is a key, uh, indicator of needing a deload, which is people like yourself and myself who look training as their favorite part of the day, uh, typically, and, and it's something that we look forward to. If you start to find yourself not wanting to go to the gym, you start to feel a little bit lethargic and, and, and just that general motivation to train de decreases. That's usually a really good indicator to me that either I need a deload or one of my clients need a deload. Uh, now that doesn't work across the board, obviously. I mean, there are people who, We'll never say that they want time away from the gym and they'll just grind themselves into a, into the dirt. And then you'll have people that just never want to work out anyway and have to force themselves to do it. So that wouldn't be a good indicator either. Uh, and there, there are other ways of, of kind of assessing if someone needs a deload or not. I like to personally do it very in a much more auto-regulatory way rather than pre-planning out deloads. Um, so performance decrements are obviously like the biggest one, but usually you would want to you probably don't want to wait to see performance decrements is usually uh, how a lot of coaches go about it. I don't know how I stand on that, to be quite honest with you. There's just not a lot of literature on deloads and detraining in general. Mm -hmm. um, but what we do know is that 
you're probably not going to hurt yourself taking some time off from the gym. Yeah. Uh, even like complete detraining is not, has not shown like huge detriments uh, in the literature, though limited though it may be. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, as far as planning deloads, it's it's definitely better to go auto-regulatory, I find, than it is to do pre-planned because what's the point of taking a break after four weeks of training if you don't need one? And what's the point of pushing to six weeks of training if after week three, you feel beat up? You know, so I think if my biggest takeaway, and once again, I'm rambling here, but my biggest takeaway is just listen to your athletes and listen to your own body. And they'll kind of tell you if they need a deload or not. Okay. Yeah, I got you. No, your rambling is absolutely fantastic. Um, I had Dr. Bill Campbell on um, a couple months back, and he sent me um, one of his research reviews where they reviewed a study um, where they did deloads, but they programmed it pretty goofy, I would say. I think they trained... I want to say they trained like three weeks and then took two weeks off and then trained three weeks and two weeks off. It was something real like nobody would actually do that. But by the end of the study, I think it was like six months, um, the people who just trained consistently and the people who took the deloads were pretty much at the same point by the end of the study, which was pretty fascinating. And to me, that kind of seemed like that's an area where people should really be like, hey, we need to do more research here to determine like – if we take a one week deload every four weeks, maybe the performance will be better at the end of six months. But, you know, obviously, as you said, it, it doesn't seem like there's a whole ton of literature there. So I'm not sure if you have any uh, additional thoughts on that. Yeah. So uh, that's a study by Ogasawa. Well, first of all, so sorry. I'm definitely going to butcher this name. I think it's a, it's a researcher <laughs> out of Japan, but Ogasawa, yeah, did uh, did that study. And it was six months of like six weeks of training, three weeks off, six weeks right. on, three weeks off or something like that. Um, and yeah, it does not lend itself very well to ecological validity, just which is basically to say like it, it's not a study that's representative of what people are doing in the real world. Right. Uh, very few people are going hard for six weeks and then taking three weeks completely off of the gym and then and then cycling that through. Um, so yeah, I, I, someone did look at that and say, hey, we need more, you know, we want something with a little more ecological validity, hence my thesis. Um, and we, I, you would... All I will say about those studies is that they do lend themselves once again to say that it's probably not a big deal if you take some time away from the gym. Like I think there's a lot of people like like ourselves, Kyle, who find a lot of identity in going to the gym and telling them that you can take a week off or two weeks off here and there is not going to be the end of the world. They're like, but what do I do if I'm not going to the gym six days? I don't know what to do for that week if I'm not going. Um, But it's just not something to necessarily worry about. And I will note um, that in that Ogasawa study – there were no statistically significant differences between groups, mm-hmm. uh, but those in the group that was did not take breaks, they did have slightly higher, uh, I think they did have slightly higher gains in both hypertrophy and strength, though not statistically significant, which is a whole other can of worms that we can get into. Okay, yeah. Well, actually, I kind of want to elucidate on that a little bit more. Um, were these, do you know about the individuals because i remember reading the study but i mean this was probably like five or six months ago that i read this and yeah like i said i remember i think it was by the end of the study they were at the same point but you had said that they had a little bit better gains than this is a training group um to me that just kind of seems indicative of hey if you train consistently and i'm guessing they weren't going extremely hard because if i remember correctly they were um untrained individuals um and perhaps you could correct me on that um but by the end, no, of the you're, you're right. They were, okay. they were untrained for sure. So yeah, it, it would, to me kind of seem like, well, yeah, if you take three weeks off as an untrained individual, then that's just way too much time. And like you said, it's just not realistically the way that people do things. Yeah. I don't know if, I don't know if that study is hindered because they were untrained. I, I'm not sure any, um, I can't tease out any mechanisms why using untrained subjects in that study would be worse uh than using trained subjects um but uh, it like you it doesn't really matter trained or untrained regardless of the population it's the the methods that they use that weren't very ecologically valid like even trained or untrained most people aren't taking three weeks off of training at any given point in time uh and if you are that's hopefully not something you do every six weeks maybe it's something that you do every six months when you're going on a vacation like some great long vacation i don't know how I don't know how many Americans are taking three week vacations, but yeah, if like I just don't think that's something that that regardless of training status would would lend itself well to the real world. 
Mm-hmm. So um, one other thing that I've heard that's kind of interesting, and I'm sure you've probably heard this too, if you listen to uh, like uh, Iron Culture, I remember uh, Eric Helms talking about the stretch boot for the Cavs where they were seeing, I, I don't want to say it was significant, but it was like notable gains in uh, people's calves when they would use a stretch device. And I, I guess a larger point for this, um, it was kind of going back to, I, I can't remember the person's name, but they were training birds with like weights or something like that. And they left the birds. The avian hyperplasia study that everyone always talks about. For yes, sure. yes, yeah. yes. So um, it's basically trying to boil down the mechanism of stretch mediated hypertrophy. Um, what do you know about that? And could you perhaps inform the audience on what that is? And if you think that's a valid concept? Yeah, so I I don't know if I know a whole lot more than what you've already talked about. So stretch-mediated hypertrophy, right, where your muscle is theoretically growing completely irrespective of of resistance training. So they had – I wish I had read up on the study a little bit more uh, recently. But basically they had subjects – yeah, they they had them for – I think like two hours a day or something like that, mm-hmm. stretch their calves at an eight out of 10, like pain scale, which is to say like very painful. Like that, this is not something <laughs> you're just like casually doing while watching TV. And they're there. They, they saw significant increases in muscle math, muscle mass compared to unstretched legs. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is some reason to believe that this is a, a valid thing. However, uh, Personally, I think it might get washed out if you're also doing resistance training. Now, Eric Helms is doing a really cool case study on himself with this, and I think results from that will, will be pretty interesting and will give a give us, though it is a case study, a little bit more insight into the to um, combining stretching with high, uh, resistance training. Uh, but we also did a study uh, at Lehman. It was led by Derek Ben Avery, so shout out Derek. Um, looking at stretching in between sets of resistance training on the calves actually so you would do a set of eight to 12 on calf raises to failure and then after the set you would sink into that stretch position just sit there for about 20 seconds right and we noticed very slight increases and i believe the soleus um but not either one of the the medial or lateral gastroc so do i think it's a valid way of growing muscle it's unlikely i i don't think i I wouldn't put a lot of chips uh, into that basket of, of stretch mediated hypertrophy being like a really good thing, uh, respective of resistance training. Now that kind of gets into it, its own conversation of these long muscle lakes in really stretched positions that we see, uh, Milo Wolf talking about. And, 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 uh, I believe mass just, uh, released something on this as well about training at mo- long muscle lengths. That seems to be getting a lot more and more credence, uh, as things go on. I will say, I did just see an interesting paper. I, I can't remember the author, but they they were comparing incline curls, which is an exercise that puts the biceps in a very lengthened stretch position, to uh, preacher curls, which takes the bicep and puts it into a very shortened position. Right, and they actually showed significantly more increases distally on the biceps in the preacher curl group, which completely confounds this whole stretch mediated or not stretch mediated long muscle lengths conversation. Yeah. Except maybe it doesn't. And the reason being is because when you do an incline curl, the tension on the, sorry, I know this is kind of hard to say, the tension on the bicep when you're doing an incline curl at the most lengthened position is like zero. I mean, like the way that you're curling, like there's no weight on, there's no tension on the bicep here when you're doing at the start position. Whereas a preacher curl, when you're at the most lengthened position of the exercise, which isn't a very lengthened position anyway, the hardest part of the exercise is right there at the most lengthened position of the exercise. So there might be something there of not necessarily the muscle being stretched itself, but where is the exercise actually the hardest and where are you putting most of the effort into? That's just an interesting little tangent that I was having a conversation with my friend Daniel about the other day. Really went on a tangent there. Sorry, I don't even really know how we got there. I apologize. Oh, no, no, no. It's it's awesome. And I think uh, myself and the listeners are uh, going to really enjoy kind of going down these deep dives. Um, the reason why I kind of started getting interested in um, stretch media to hypertrophy um, was because I remember Mike Isratel mentioning just like real quickly that, oh, yeah, well, the most stimulative is when you're at like the most stretched, right? So like if you're doing a uh, set of like um, inclined bench press, right? Um, then, you know, that very, very low part where the bar's on your chest, that's when you're going to 
you know, trigger the most amount of growth because it's the most um, difficult part of the exercise. And what that encouraged me to do, and I've definitely seen notable gains in my chest, but I mean, I also recently started benching again after not doing it for a long time. But um, it seems like my chest has responded really, really well to that. And I typically use like the uh, cambered, the buffalo bar on the uh, incline press. And yeah, it's a hell of a stretch at the very bottom of the rep. So um, I'm not sure if you have any kind of more thoughts on that. No, I, yeah. So I, it does, it's like, I couldn't agree more with Dr. Mike in that instance. And, and I'm sure, yeah, like doing a, doing a incline press or any pressing movement where you're really like uh, emphasizing that stretch uh, or really um, you can set up exercises to be more difficult in a stretch position versus in a shortened position. Mm -hmm. And yeah, like I would, if, if I were a betting man, I'd probably put my chips towards that, towards things, the, the stretched, the most stretched portion of the exercise typically being the most hypertrophic. I think I would agree with him there, which is why I think we're seeing so much, uh, we're seeing so much data kind of lending itself to this lengthened partials thing that, that, uh, Milo Wolf is such a big fan of. Uh, so yeah, I think that if you can find an exercise that is comfortable for you where you can accentuate that the the difficulty of the exercise in the stretch position it's probably a good idea to do now that's not to say that we should completely ignore other portions of the exercise right. uh, i'm not fully on board with doing only lengthened partials obviously though i do think it's a good idea um so yeah i think that there are probably some reasons to believe that maybe training the shortened position even is still a really good idea obviously Okay. So yeah, one other thing that you were just talking about there, and I have Milo coming on here in a couple of weeks. I got him scheduled and I'm excited to talk to him because um, Mike is a big uh, proponent of full range of motion. But um, as you were kind of alluding to there, he's put out a lot of research recently that's suggesting that length and partials may actually be very, very beneficial. Um, so I'm not sure what kind of research you've kind of seen out of that or if you've read any of his studies. Um, because like I said, I've always been of the mind of you should always do full range of motion so that way not only do you keep your joints healthy, but that's from what I initially understood the most beneficial way to train because, you know, you're putting your, you're exposing yourself to, you know, once again, that length and position. Yeah. So, I mean, for, for a long time, that was the prevailing thought because that was the, the best data that we had on it was saying that, yeah, full range of motion is probably a good idea, but that might be because we were just thinking about partial range of motion a little bit incorrectly, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I will I will pull up or uh, pull you back on saying that it was it's it's better for joints and stuff. I okay. I don't know where this idea comes from. I understand that you have to use less weight when you use full range of motion, uh, and definitely, yeah, probably it's gun to my head. It probably is safer to use a full range of motion, right. which forces you to use less weight. But I just don't think that we can confidently make that claim as of right now. Okay. Uh, anyway, moving towards that. Yeah, I think that we, because of this data that's coming out, looking at maybe partials the right way, which is to say doing them in a, in a lengthened position rather than a shortened position, we are kind of seeing that, okay, maybe this whole full range of motion thing that this evidence-based community has been preaching for so long might be a little bit misguided. And it might actually be better to use a partial range of motion, which is going to be a fun, uh, if that ends up, if it does end up coming to be true that yes, Full lengthened partials are definitely better in almost all contexts than full range of motion. It's going to be a fun conversation watching all the bodybuilders be like, "See, look, we were right all around. <laughs> look, we were right all along." Yeah. And you and you gym nerds, you you science nerds, uh, have taken long to catch up to us, essentially. So uh, I, I'm not willing to, like I said, I'm not willing to say that full range of motion is, is something that we should completely ditch. We should stop doing it. But um, it does seem like things are kind of moving in that direction. We'll see, though. Yeah, it's uh, like I said, it's really interesting because it seems like that's almost consensus at this point. So well, kind of when it comes to programming that um, I haven't even really attempted to do this. So for length and partials, let's say a squat, would that kind of be like going the whole way to the bottom and maybe coming up like a half, maybe three quarters of the way and going back down? Would that be kind of like doing a length and partial, would you say, or how would you kind of go about programming this for someone? No, I mean, I think, I mean, bada bing, bada boom, you just kind of nailed it right there. Okay. Like you go, you would start the squat, obviously you start the squat standing, but you go all the way down, really accentuate the knee forward movement, assuming you're squatting for quads mm -hmm. and you come up, not all the way, probably halfway up to like parallel or something like that, depending on how low you're squatting. 
And and that would be an example of a length and partial exercise. Um, sorry, one second. No, that's okay. Um, I think a really good example of this is on, you can see Steve Hall doing this a, a lot on his uh, Instagram where he does bent over rows where he rows to his knee and then goes all the way back down to the ground and rows to his knee rather than pulling all the way up to his, his stomach or his chest or what have you. I think that those are another really good way of visualizing what length and partials look like. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, want, I don't want people to get it twisted that length and partials, because a, a big uh, caveat to length and partials is it's hard to uh, standardize, which mm -hmm. I think, um, I don't think that, that that's a great argument personally. So for instance, like lat pull downs, it's really easy to know when we're done, right? We pull down until the bar touches our chest, what have you. Uh, but it's just as easy uh, to pull down until the bar is right at your eye line or, or right to your forehead, for instance. So uh, I think that that's another example of how you could program length and partials. Uh, full disclosure, just like you, Kyle, I've actually not around with these yet. Um, I do a lot of exercise that, that accentuate the length and position. Anyway, I, I try to do length and leg extensions. I, I do a lot of RDLs for my hamstrings. Mm -hmm. uh, and I do a lot of flies that try and accentuate the stretch on my, on my chest. Um, but I, I'm cutting right now, so I'm not trying to manipulate a whole bunch of variables while doing it. But I will say that uh, as soon as I'm done with this cut, I'm going to start a new mesocycle and I'm going to program some length and partials to give it a shot for myself to see how I like it. It's definitely something I want to practice on myself before having any of my clients do it just because I like to experiment on myself before experimenting with my clients. Yeah, no, I definitely feel you. Um, I, I've, I've kind of done it when it comes to like supplementation, you know, when a uh, turkesterone and beta actosterone were kind of going around huge, I'm like, all right, well, you know what, I'll, I'll do it. If, if I can find it for cheap enough, I'll try it. But you know, surely enough, it, I didn't really see any results. Yeah. So <laughs> when it comes to supplementation, um, for me, I usually just say like beta alanine and creatine. Um, you know, obviously I don't really consider protein powder a supplement. I think that's more of a food, but, um, you know, some people consider it a supplement. Um, and then maybe like, I also do like fish oil, um, CLA and like a multivitamin. It's pretty much all I do. Um, is there anything that you would recommend supplement wise? So, yeah, I mean, like, yeah, I have basically the same, the same opinions as you. The only supplement that I take is, is creatine. And now we're having some, uh, some more and more data coming out that maybe that's not even worth taking. Um, hmm. it's a cool little, plug for a for a, a creatine study that just dropped actually so shout out to you ryan burke for uh, leading that one mm -hmm. uh so we have some evidence to say that maybe it's not as good for hypertrophy as we once thought right uh but i still take it it's super cheap and it's hedging my bets that it'll improve my body composition regardless of if that's directly from uh hypertrophy or not uh fish oils you're not going to hurt yourself taking fish oils and multivitamins probably a safe bet uh to be quite honest, and yeah, like whey protein, it's more of a real meal replacement, but it's sure as hell a great thing to have on hand. If you if you call it a supplement, yeah, you should be taking whey protein just because it's like the nicest thing to have on hand if, if you're, you know, you don't want to walk to the store for a chicken breast or what have you. Mm -hmm. uh, I will say my favorite supplement that we haven't talked about is caffeine. I think personally, oh, yeah. caffeine is an amazing supplement. Mm -hmm. I am, it is, it's better than a supplement. It's quite literally a drug mm -hmm. and I love it. Uh, and I, <laughs> I, I think it's, I think it's amazing for weight loss. I think it's amazing for gym performance. I think it's awesome. Uh, and then the last supplement that I think I'll, I'll, I'll plug because I get money from all of these supplement companies, uh, is probably vitamin D. Uh, I think that there is a good reason to believe that supplementing vitamin D, especially in winter months is probably a good idea. It's probably just not something that's going to hurt you. And again, vitamin D is pretty cheap. You can get like a billion tablets from Costco for like $10. So uh, those are the ones that I would typically recommend. They're, they're cheap. They're easy. They're no negative health effects associated with eating them or sorry, taking them. Uh, so yeah, I would say vitamin D, caffeine, creatine. And like we said, if we call whey protein a supplement, then whey protein as well. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. So, uh, what's kind of that new research coming out, um, against creatine. And then, um, I didn't hear you include beta alanine. So I'm curious your thoughts on beta alanine, because, um, from what I understand, that's supposed to help you buffer lactic acid towards like the end of your set. So like, you know, if you're doing the 45 to 60 second sets, then in theory, that's supposed to give you better gains. So I'm curious if maybe there's some data that you've seen that may disagree with that, or if you just don't think it's useful. 
It's not I, so uh, the creatine. Well, I'll start there. We we sure. recently did a meta analysis here, uh, looking, which was actually surprising to us that there weren't uh, there hadn't been a meta analysis done on creatine for hypertrophy specifically. So we ran that, and we basically found like very modest effects. Uh, or to to two trivial effects. We did a sub analysis and found that there may be a slight benefit for younger individuals doing it uh, rather than older individuals. But I'm just not confident saying that because it was I believe there was like two studies on younger individuals and the rest were on older individuals that we analyzed in that meta analysis. Um, I could be wrong, so I apologize if I'm misspeaking here. Uh, but I just I'm not I'm not putting all my chips into two studies saying that it had a modest effect. Um, I, but I, that being said, like I said, it's cheap. It's probably, it's not hurting you to take it. It's totally fine. Uh, now, beta, beta alanine, I'm not super familiar with research on beta alanine. I, I just have heard people much smarter than myself talk about it. And they seem to suggest that, yeah, it probably isn't worth, you know, taking beta alanine for specifically for like strength and hypertrophy related goals. Uh, but same with creatine, like there's probably not a lot of negatives to taking it. It's, it's not a very expensive supplement. So if it's something that you enjoy and beta alanine is the one that gives you the tingles, right? Yeah. Or, yeah. Yeah. So, and a lot of people, a lot of people love that. So like <laughs> if, if, if you're someone who really enjoys having your skin feel like there's bugs crawling under it while you're training then be my guest take beta alanine all you like uh, i certainly like the edge that caffeine gives me when i'm when i'm training yeah. so i'm assuming it's kind of a similar placebo to to beta alanine as well so it's not something that i would ever be like oh my god what, what are you doing don't take yeah. that but it's it's something that i would say you know probably you know if, if you're if you're strapped for cash it's probably not something i would be throwing money towards all right, guys, um, I'm absolutely thrilled with the uh, show's new sponsor. Um, I am now sponsored and uh, have an affiliate through LMNT Electrolytes. Um, I've used these electrolytes for years. Um, back when I used to do a lot of fasting, in fact, I used to drink, sometimes I want to say up to seven a day, seven little packets. So um, the packets are full of all the electrolytes that you need to perform and hydrate yourself properly. Um you need sodium for pretty much every single function in your body, despite what um, a lot of people may tell you. Um, sodium doesn't actually cause a lot of the issues that uh, people kind of would have you believe. So um, just real quick to give you a little bit of facts. Um, you don't need sugar to hydrate. Electrolytes and water don't require glucose to pass through the gut. The average American consumes over 60 pounds of sugar a year. And um, when it comes to athletic performance, um, you can actually lose up to seven grams per day in hot climate. So um, make sure you click on the affiliate link below to get all your hydration needs. And like I said, I'm super stoked to have these guys um, teamed up with the podcast and uh, just make sure you get your uh, electrolytes through Element. All right, guys, thanks. Okay, yeah, that's that's completely fair. Yeah, I do take a uh, crap load of caffeine. I have so many pre-workouts and then obviously my whole uh, little Keurig thing downstairs and I have my coffee every single morning. Um, what are your thoughts on like sodium pre-workout? Because I know a lot of like the low carb people promote this and I used to do carnivore and I found that it really helped then. Um, now that I have a more of a flexible dieting advocate, um, I don't find it quite as useful. So I'm not sure if you're kind of aware of anything in that regard. So sodium, I've, I've seen like some people on Instagram talking about like taking a, a tablespoon of table salt uh, b before your workout to increase pumps and stuff. Uh, and I, I mean, I just, I think that most people, especially in America are probably getting plenty of sodium in their everyday, you know, like diet, like whatever you're eating, you're probably getting enough uh, sodium. You're probably salting your food if you're cooking at home even. So like, it's not something that I would really ever tell people to do. It's once again, probably not going to hurt you to take salt, like a, a decent amount of salt as long as you're not eating, you know, so much salt that you're like hurting yourself and you maybe monitor your blood pressure. If you're someone that is eating like a tablespoon of salt before every single workout, but it's not something that I think is going to, is going to make a huge difference. Some people say that uh, it leads to like way better pumps for them and they may just be like under eating sodium throughout the, the day. So like, for instance, if you're on a carnivore diet and you're not eating a lot of processed foods with typically high amounts of sodium, yeah, it's probably going to, it's probably going to feel good to eat sodium because you're just getting back to like what is your baseline for what you should be consuming for sodium throughout the day anyway but generally speaking it's not something that i recommend to people okay yeah i think that's fair enough then um so when it comes to uh training for you and your clients um how do you kind of program for them like um let's say somebody comes to you that has never trained before 
um, do you start them off on kind of like a three day full body, two day full body, or what does that kind of look like? And how do you kind of walk them through that? Yeah. So, so I typically start, I'm, I'm maybe a little bit even more conservative than your average individual when it comes to starting novices out on training. Um, but it depends on their goal. So like, how do I train for people is it's like, that's a whole podcast episode in itself is, is how we go about structuring programming for different individuals. But let's say I have someone coming to me who's, who's never lifted before. And let's say that it's an online interaction, right? Um, I would probably have them. Usually my question is how many days do you want to work out? And then I give a caveat to that, which is what is the most, what is the number of days that on your worst week, you know, that you can make it to the gym mm. that way, just because I think it's easier to have a very set strict program that is manageable than having a loosey goosey, much more difficult program to like kind of adapt as we go along. And it's different client to client, obviously. So like I know Bill Campbell, for instance, has like a three-day program that he runs and a five-day program that he runs depending on the week, right? That's a little bit more difficult for a new lifter. So I usually say like two to three days, mostly machine-based stuff. If their goal is just general health and like even hypertrophy, unless they're like really interested in strength gains, then I'll maybe mm -hmm. we'll throw some, uh, some barbells in there as well for, for some big three lifts. Uh, but generally it's machines based stuff and that's solely so that it, those are much easier to learn. I find for individuals and they're just easier for me to like correct techniques through videos and stuff, whether it's like a deadlift, a squat, a uh, bench mm -hmm. press is a little bit more difficult if I'm not there in person to give you cues while you're exercising and stuff. Um, and then just keeping volumes and intensities relatively low to make sure that the client has the technique down. And then as the, as that client progresses in understanding what it means to be consistent in the gym, then we'll start throwing some bells and whistles in there to make it like a much more comprehensive program. Mm -hmm. So I think I rambled there too, but basically start low, maybe even lower than most people generally do, and then start building up to like a more comprehensive training program. I got you. Okay. Yeah. It kind of seems like most beginners start off around like a three-day program where, like you said, kind of like with a lot of machines and then kind of build their way up. And when it comes to more like trained people, it seems like recently push-pull legs really blew up. And I, I, I ran that for a little bit. That was kind of like my first diving into training muscles more than once a week and i really really liked it but then you know you're kind of living in the gym it's like hey you're here six days a week and just really getting after it and if you're deadlifting and including you know compound lifts twice a week that can really take a toll on you and then um now i've kind of rolled back to like four days a week just doing like a full body pull full body push um four days a week and I'm thinking I may go to like a three day a week again, full body, just to kind of, you know, I don't want to say get a little bit of a break, but just because I kind of train, tra uh, changing it up every here and there. So um, what does your training look like now? So, yeah, I'm kind of the opposite of you, actually, okay. in that I would rather be in the – so, like, ideally, truthfully, like, this is not just – this is a, mm -hmm. just me playing devil's advocate. Ideally, if I had my druthers and I could do whatever I wanted, I would train six days a week, two a days, 12 times a, a week in the gym. And the reason <laughs> – well, one, I just love training. Yeah. But also, it's not because I'm just this hardcore dude who, who trains harder than you do, Kyle. It's because – I would rather be in the gym for a shorter period of time and get like really nice quality work in than be in there for like two to three hours. Cause if you're training two to three days a week, like you've got to be in the gym like yeah. a decent amount of time. Like I'm not saying you have to train for four hours, but like you have to be in there. If you want to make decent progress, you have to spend a good bit, a bit of time in the gym. It's just how it goes. Right. And so if you do that over the spread over three days, you're going to have to be in the gym for over an hour, over an hour and a half, probably. Yeah. If you do it spread over six days, you just don't have to be in the gym for much more than an hour almost ever, really. Mm -hmm. uh, so I definitely prefer six days, even when uh, – so like for instance, like this semester, right, from February to literally yesterday, I was running my thesis and I was in the gym Monday, Wednesday, and Friday from basically like 9 to 4 p.m. training subjects. I'm not doing a heavy squat workout after training people all day long. It's just not – I'm not going to have good productive training. I'm beat up. I'm tired both emotionally – psychologically and physically, I'm just tired. I'm beat. Right. But I still want to train six days a week just because I don't want to on Tuesdays and Thursdays be in the gym for, you know, 
four to six hours, whatever have you, right? So what I did for the semester was I had days, I had one rest day like I normally do. And I took it on Wednesdays because that was just our heaviest research day. Mm -hmm. And I would do on days that we were training people, I would just hit shoulders and calves. There, Look, no one's day is so hard that they can't go home and do a set of lateral raises instead of calf raises, right? Like those are just exercises that take very little like emotional bandwidth to complete. Uh, And then I would save those like harder, you know, bigger muscle focused days, like back, chest, quads, hams, whatever it you may be, I would leave those for days in which I wasn't conducting research. So I would do basically like four days of like actual training where I was hitting like big, heavy compounds and, and, and doing like actual fun training. And then I would have two days a week uh, where I was basically just doing shoulders and calves, which is just something to keep me in the gym without actually taxing me. Now that I'm done with research, uh, I fortunately can go back to training the way I want to, which is like I said, six days a week of like all actual workouts rather yeah. than two, four real workouts and then two little supplementary days. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that'll probably look something like just, I do, uh, I don't, it doesn't fall under a, like a, a nice, you know, clean split, like push, pull legs or upper lower or anything like that. But I think it's closest to like a modified full body where like on Monday, I'll maybe doing like legs and and maybe some shoulders as well. And then I'll have my upper day where it's a little bit more chest focused with a little bit of back and then, you know, just kind of like cycling through the week that way. Okay. Yeah. So uh, one other thing I was curious about um, in your time researching, has there been anything that really changed the way that you trained or that you changed your mind on? So I've been gearing my training towards like this research evidence-based thing for the last, oh God, six years now, I guess. Um, Which is to say that like my mind is constantly changing on things, obviously. Like for instance, we just talked about the like wrinkles in this whole like lengthened partials, like evidence, right? So my mind is changing on that, even though it was just changed on that recently anyway. So like things are constantly changing because it's such an an, an infant field where like new information is constantly coming out. But I will say the, the most prevailing thing that I just constantly keep learning and constantly keep having to tell myself is that more is not always better. And I, th- I know that sounds silly to say, especially since we're talking to a mostly evidence-based crowd who knows that more is not always better. Mm-hmm. But like, really letting that sink in and understanding that it's actually true because I mean, dude, we're bros. We we were lifters. Like we just yeah. were in that community where generally people are screaming, go harder, uh, mm-hmm. do more, whatever have you. Right. And trying to like constantly remind yourself that, Hey, look, as fun as it is to go balls to the wall, it actually might not be as optimal as we think. So I think constantly reminding myself of that fact is, is probably the most prevailing and consistent thing that research has showed me is that there is a limit to which your body can recover from and pushing it past that is not making you any cooler or harder. It's just actually hurting your progress more than anything else. Mm -hmm. So train within your body's recoverable capacities, I think is the big takeaway that I've, that I've found over the last couple of years. Yeah. Um, the stimulus to fatigue ratio is very, very important. And I've definitely found that that's, you know, a huge thing for me. If I'm feeling pretty beat up, um, I know you were talking about your hamstrings earlier, but I find that if I do a set of RDLs pretty freaking hard, then, uh, I'm, I'm usually pretty torched for quite a few days. And, uh, I, you know, the next pool workout isn't all that good. Um, when I do something like that. So, um, one more thing I wanted to touch on with you, and then we could probably, uh, wrap it here in a few, um, is nutrition stuff. So, um, I said earlier, I'm car or I was carnivore and now I do more of a flexible dieting approach. Um, it seems like most of the evidence kind of just points to like, Hey, as long as you're hitting sufficient protein, the rest of it doesn't matter. Don't go crazy. Like putting a whole stick of butter in your coffee and try to get as much fiber as possible. And it seems to be kind of like the recommendations for nutrition in general. So like for me personally, I ate a little bit higher fat, but still get anywhere from like 40 to 80 grams of fiber a day and usually about 180 grams of protein. And then, you know, like I said, carbs and fats may fall where they may. Um, so I'm curious kind of what your thoughts are there. Yeah. So I, I think uh full disclosure for anyone watching, I did get some questions before we started this. And one of them was, what does your diet look like? Mm-hmm. And as a master's student complete, completing his thesis, you don't want to know what my diet looks like for, for an example of how people should be eating. I was drinking like 
four double shot espresso like starbucks mocha things a day and then like i was like oh shit it's 10 p.m oh, and i have to hit my protein so let's chug three fair life protein bottles with 44 grams of protein each oh God. don't live like that don't eat like that this is not a recommendation uh but yeah i mean look you you kind of got it you kind of hit the nail on the head there which is like there's pretty loose rules here as far as nutrition is concerned which is really you know that's really nice for a lot of people is that like there are some you know fundamental things that you should do hit your protein eat fruits and vegetables yes obviously like fiber is there to consider as well maybe don't eat all of your protein in one meal uh, and 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 maybe you know make sure your micronutrients are are in check essentially so the, cover that with eating fruits and vegetables right uh and then yeah like the 1.6 to 2.2 grams of protein maybe you can get away with even less uh and then just making sure your calories aren't out of whack either too high or too low if you're trying to lose or gain weight mm-hmm. uh there's just very set principles like it's just like it's just not that nuanced i mean there's there there are ways to get way more nuanced about that that's not me saying that nutrition is not nuanced eric trexler please don't come after me for that but i i think you kind of got it man like yeah hit your protein make sure that you're eating plenty of fiber through fruits and vegetables and whole grains and mostly it's probably going to fall like you like i personally track my protein and calories when i'm dieting uh, and when I'm not dieting, like when I'm not cutting, I kind of just, you know, I make sure I'm getting enough protein and I make sure that I'm not gaining weight too quickly, make sure to have some fruits and veggies here. And then when I'm, uh, when things start to get a little bit more serious, so like, uh, I started my cuts usually around 205 pounds, 210 pounds, and usually end up around like 175 to 180, 170 on the lower end. Uh, and when I start getting to like 175, 180, I kind of have to start being a little bit more serious about things where I'll start tracking, like making sure that my fats and my carbs aren't too out of whack. Cause I find that normally I can just let them fall where they may be. But once I start getting lean enough, I have to start making sure that I'm getting enough fat so that I feel, you know, like I, like I feel good and I have like optimal hormone production there. And then I also have to make sure that I'm getting enough carbs so I don't feel super depleted for training. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think, but like, if you follow the basic principles, unless you're in pretty extreme circumstances, it's just not a magical, there's nothing there. You're not going to turn over some rock that's going to like substantially improve your results in the gym, unless that rock is eating like protein or, or, or getting vegetables and fruit in and shit like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I've gone to bat with the uh, seed oil people quite a bit just because it seems to be the in thing right now that seed oils are going to kill you. And it's like, I, I, come on guys. Like this is so ridiculous. That little teaspoon of seed oil that you get every single day is not killing you. And from what I understand of the literature, um, may actually have a cardioprotective effect um when you do the studies and you compare different fats versus saturated fat which was hard for me to come to as a guy who was formerly carnivore to see all the research that says hey that's probably not good for you (laughs) yeah people are really running away with the whole i think people in the carnivore community are typically running away with this whole like seed oils thing and also the defense chemicals of of fruits and vegetables that are also really (laughs) bad for you don't listen to those people. I mean, if you're watching this podcast and you're and you're listening to people like Bill Campbell and all the other wonderful guests you've had on your podcast, you probably already know this stuff. Mm-hmm. But yeah, maybe maybe we don't listen to the carnivore crowd. Let's turn that noise down a little bit. I, I was hope that the whole liver king exposure thing would have led to like a kind of a decline <laughs> in the the carnivore world, but I don't know if that seems to be the case or not. Yeah, yeah, it's uh it's really, really appealing because I think it sells to people's kind of instincts that, you know, this one trick and every single time I see that, I'm like, oh my God, I'm just going to, I'm going to murder somebody. I swear to God. Um, and I've done a little bit of research on it, but like the, uh, eating disorder stuff, just like making people crazy about what they're eating. It's like, that's going to cause people way, 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 way more damage than anything that you're telling them not to eat and they eat it might actually cause them like artificial sweeteners. You're going to be fine. Like all this stuff, just quit worrying about that. The the basic recommendations are fine that we kind of laid out here. It It's just, I feel so bad because people like come to me all the time and they are like scared to eat anything except for stuff with high fat. And they want to just chug butter. I'm like, relax. Carbs aren't going to kill you guys. Come on. Yeah. I mean, I want to chug butter too. Don't get me wrong, but it's just, <laughs> It's not something that, I, yeah, it's not something I recommend to people by any means, especially not for like health purposes, obviously. Who knows, man? You get used to it, by the way. Like, and I'm saying this to you, who's older than me, obviously. Sorry. But like, 
it's just it's going to happen and like yeah. in five years it's not going to be seed oils it'll be that actually oh protein is bad we didn't know protein was bad now this <laughs> new like low protein fad diet is out that's like way better for losing weight uh so who knows yeah i'm getting used to the fad diet thing it's just they they're they're so cyclical and it's yeah it's exhausting but then you know hopefully hopefully it uh ends uh soon yeah. which uh with some of these uh really really promising obesity ending drugs that are potentially coming out yeah, well, I know Ozempic was a, a pretty big one, but from what I understand, um, that that just slows the gastric emptying, so it really crushes people's appetite. But the problem there is, once you go off of it, if you don't understand the mechanisms or change your behavior, then unfortunately, you may gain a lot of that weight back. Yeah, for sure. I and, and like, there's no question about that, obviously. But hopefully, we there. You know, I just think that like new advances are happening constantly that are going to make things hopefully I like, I think uh, Israel talks a lot about how the next 10 years are going to be really cool. Mm -hmm. I think, I think he's right. I think the next 10 years are going to be really cool and who knows, maybe, maybe uh, trainers like us are going to be out of a job. It'll definitely be worth it for the, the betterment of the, the, the human world that we live in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, hopefully. All right. Um, yeah, we've been going for about an hour now, Max. I've really, really enjoyed this chat. So we'll definitely have to do, do it again sometime. Um, where can everybody find you, your research and stuff like that? Yeah. So, I mean, you guys can, uh, I'm sure we'll link it in the show notes uh, on wherever it is that we post this, but you can follow me on Instagram. You just type in Max Coleman, it'll come up. But my handle is sharkbait, uh, <laughs> which is a, is a Finding Nemo joke for anyone out there that would understand. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm on Instagram, I'm on ResearchGate. Uh, I don't have a Twitter, which I probably should get on because a lot of people are more serious on Twitter, but uh, definitely look me up and uh, throw me a follow. That'd be awesome. Yeah. Awesome stuff, man. Well, like I said, I really enjoyed this chat. Um, very, very informative. And I found that your research was very, very, um, you know, digestible and informative for me as well. So um, I'll, um, like I said, I'll link all your stuff in the show notes below. And if you've got anything else, we'll uh, close her out. Oh, I think we're good. Thank you so much. Awesome, Max. Well, until next time, everybody, thanks for listening and take care. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.